What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Before we dive into this week's interview, I wanted to give you all a quick heads up that the 2021 edition of CMX's Community Industry Report is now available. We had over 500 community professionals and teams participate in this survey, which aimed to answer questions like, what is the value of community to businesses and what are the most popular metrics used for measuring community? We looked at the impact of COVID-19 on communities and virtual events, and we dove into how community teams are investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and for the first time gathered data on the representation of different races and ethnicities in the community industry itself. There are loads of interesting insights in this report, and you can download it all for free today. Just head to cmxhub.com. Again, that's cmxhub.com, and you can download the report there. Today's interview is with my good friend, the incredible Nir Al. Nir is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Hooked and Indistractable. He's a lecturer at Stanford School of Business and Design School. Uh, he's someone that's been an inspiration to me for a long time. I've learned an incredible amount from him about to build communities and build products that can get people to come back. That's what Hooked was all about, is how to build habit-forming technologies and, and understanding the loop that brings people back into your communities over and over again as they form a habit to become a more engaged member. And then he recently published Indistractable, which was all about how to identify the distractions in your life and the things that are pulling you into time spent that you didn't mean to spend, right? The apps, the notifications, the pings for community professionals who are constantly managing different platforms and different communication channels. It's easy to be pulled in lots and lots of different directions and not really know how to spend your time intentionally and make sure you can actually get some work done amongst checking in on your community and social platforms and email and everything that you have to do every day. So we talk all about how to build more engaging and healthy communities, and we talk about how to manage your own time in your own calendar to make sure you can actually get work done. There's so much practical stuff in this one. Uh, You're going to want to buy both of the books at the end because there's just so much more to dive into. You're really going to love it. Let's dive in. Nir, welcome to the show. David, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Long time coming. Been wanting to get you on the show for a long time. We've been kind of working in similar worlds for a very long time, running conferences, and and now writing books and you've been a, an incredible mentor and guide for me through my whole career so yeah just grateful grateful to have you here oh thank you and and likewise it's been so awesome seeing everything you've done over the years we've known each other a long time david do you know that by the way we it's been how long's it been like almost a decade bro <laughs> it's wow been a very yeah. long time right cuz i guess we met we probably met around 2000 and 11, 2012, I would say, uh, right when I was finishing up my last company. Yeah. And then I spoke at, at, uh, your conference, the first, at the first one, mm-hmm. the summit. Um, right. That was so, 2014. Yeah. That was 2014. Right. 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 As, uh, my first book was coming out. You were one of the first people that I reached out to cause I was, we came up with a concept for, uh, CMX summit. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, who are the best speakers I know that will say yes to me despite not knowing anything about this event <laughs> and no, like it not, it literally didn't even have a website yet. I was just like, near, I'm putting together this event. Would you come speak? And you're like, yeah, anything for you. And I was yeah. like, fuck, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> anything for you, man. Happy, happy to do it. And so well, great seeing how the CMX community has been, has been growing and all your success and now a new baby and uh, a new book coming out. It's awesome. I'm so, so proud to know you. Uh, thank you. That means a lot. Um, awesome. Well, so th- for those who don't know, you would love to, if you could just share some background about your journey of how you came to be doing the work you did today with writing Indistractable, you wrote the book Hooked, you've been working in kind of the product world, uh, understanding the psychology of products for a long time. So what, what's your background and how did you get to that point? Yeah, so today I would call myself a behavioral designer. And so that means that my job is to help companies build healthy habits in their users' lives. So I specialize in engagement and retention. How can you bring people back to use your product, your service, your community with little or no conscious thought, purely out of habit? Now, why would we want to do that? Because habits can be very good for our day-to-day life, right? When we form a habit around exercise, uh, around education, around personal health and wellness, around uh, uh taking your medication, around communicating with loved ones, whatever the case might be, 
uh, we can use technology facilitated products to get us into these good habits. And so that's really been my specialty for over a decade now, really understanding the psychology of how these products bring us back so that we can use this for good. And of course, the, the archetype for how to do this came from the companies that do it for maybe not so good reasons. Right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's that we can talk about that as well. But you know, these products that some people think are frivolous or time wasters. Now that's debatable, but you know, the companies that I studied to learn how to uh, get people hooked are the ones that are best at it. So I studied companies like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, Snapchat, enterprise, as well as consumer web companies to understand the deeper psychology of how they get us hooked. And uh, I taught a class at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and then later I moved over to the Platner Institute of Design, where I taught students how to uh, build these habit-forming products. And then that became my first book, Hooked, uh, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, that's the title. And then uh, a few years after, I wanted to explore the other side of the question. So if Hooked is about how do you build good habits, Indistractable is about how do you break those bad habits? Because, you know, I found that I was struggling with this in my own life. Uh, the busier I got, you know, it was almost easy to write hooked because uh, not many people were calling me. Uh, I didn't have a, a you know, my, uh, I wasn't doing all that much speaking because I didn't, you know, nobody knew who I was. And then I got busier and busier and I found that I couldn't stay focused on the thing that things that were really important to me. And I kept getting distracted by a hundred different things. And so I really wanted to dive into the deeper psychology. Largely also because I think the other methods out there did not work for me. I mean, I read every book on the topic. I tried the digital detoxes. I tried the vilification of technology, trying to say that technology is the reason we all get distracted. And I, I just didn't buy it. Uh, it. It didn't work when I cut it out of my life. And if you look at the scientific literature, this idea that it's addicting everyone, that it's hijacking our brains, it's silly. It's just an excuse. It's not real. And so I wanted to have some really practical tools for how could I be indistractable? And let me tell you, David, you know, the first book changed my life. The second book really uh, improved my life for the better because at one point I almost felt like I was getting out of control in terms of like there was, there was a lot of business success that came from my first book, Hooked. A lot of companies wanted to know how to build habit-forming products. I was very busy, but my head wasn't in the right place. My relationships were, were, were not being invested in properly. My relationship with my daughter, my wife, my physical health suffered. Uh, all this stuff that tends to happen when people get really, really busy. Now, I have to say, because of Indistractable, and again, I, I write books for me, right? I write books that I want to read because I have a problem I want fixed, and all the other books I read on the topic don't fix it for me. So that's why I wrote these books was for me. And I have to say being indistractable is really the super skill of the century that if you know how to manage your attention, this is how we control our life. So today uh, I'm about to turn 43. I'm in the best physical shape I've ever been in my life. <laughs> I used to be clinically obese. Today, I, I don't say this to brag, just to show you how this stuff really works. I have a six pack. I've never had a six pack. <laughs> no, you know, just as like, you know, a measure of consistently doing physical activity, physical exercise, you know, it really pays off. I spend more time working with focus. I have better relationships in my life. Just so many things are so much better now because I am indistractable. And so that's, that's really really uh, been because of this five-year journey to write the book that I adopted these skills in my own life. I love it. And you bring up a few good topics there that I know come up a lot in the community world. Uh, one being like, who's, whose responsibility is it? Is it the role of these big social media platforms to you know, manage how addictive their tools are because really like, I mean, every startup that's building anything social, like their metric of success is how engaged can we make people? And this is our, our job as community builders and community professionals. Like we measure ourselves by monthly active users and daily active users. And how often can we get people to come back and participate in our communities? But at one point does, does that like flip over into now healthy for our members? And is it our responsibility or, or is it the member's responsibility to manage those habits? Yeah, so it's a, it's a terrific question, and it's something that I address in my first book, Hooked. Uh, I would say the summary of, I think, the ethical implications here are that, first of all, we need to realize that addiction and this term is way overused and misused these days. That the reason I didn't title my book How to Build Addictive Products, it's titled How to Build Habit-Forming Products, is because addictions are always bad. 
right? The definition of an addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So we would never want to build for addiction because we would never want to harm our users. And by the way, it's also bad business. Not only is it ethically bad, uh, it's bad business because what tends to happen with addicted users of tech products is that they burn out. Right. Remember, you know, technology is not like a drug and that that metaphor gets tossed around and it's super disrespectful to people who actually struggle with the addiction of drugs because it's not even on the same scale. You know, we're not freebasing Facebook. We're not injecting Instagram. We're not snorting Snapchat. Like, give me a break. <laughs> These are apps, people. They're not heroin. And we use this language. One, I think it's disrespectful to people who actually suffer from the disease of addiction. And I think it's super disempowering because what, what people do, you know, you hear people in the media saying, oh, it's addictive, it's this, it's that. What you're doing is essentially disempowering yourself because when you call technology addictive, now there's a dealer, there's a pusher, there's someone doing it to you as opposed to calling it what it really is, which is a distraction, right? When you call it a distraction, oh, man. Now I can do something about it. That's no fun. <laughs> now I can assume some personal responsibility. But of course, that's much more empowering to realize that for the vast majority of people, now some people are actually addicted to technology. We know it's uh, between three to 5% of the population. It's a tiny fraction of people are actually addicted, clinically addicted. Because look, people get addicted to all sorts of stuff. Not everyone who has a glass of wine with dinner is an alcoholic. That's ridiculous. Very small percentage of the population is addicted. And there's always some kind of comorbidity. When you talk to an addiction counselor, you'll find there is never just someone who is addicted to social media. There's always a comorbidity of obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, trauma, anxiety disorder. There's always something else going on, these deeper reasons. And guess what? They are using technology as an escape from all the other stuff they're dealing with. That's that's always the root cause. So the vast majority of us are not addicted. And so we don't need to worry about the pathology, the disease of addiction. We need to worry about the distraction that it causes. And so this is why it's really important to understand what is distraction, really. And it's a term that I didn't really appreciate or understand fully before I started writing this book. I used to think that the opposite of distraction is focus right? I want focus. The opposite of dis focus is a distraction, vice versa. Not true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the origin of the word, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things you do with intent, things that help move you towards your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action that pulls you further away from what you said you're going to do, things that pull you farther away from your values, farther away from the person you want to become. So why is this so important and how does this apply to, to community managers? Well, in the very definition of the difference between traction and distraction is intent. So if you want to spend time playing video games or watching Netflix or interacting with a community, and that is what you intend to do with your time in advance, that is traction. That's not a distraction, that is traction. So don't listen to these chicken little tech critics who tell you, oh, Facebook is evil and Instagram is hijacking your brain. And come on, rubbish, silly. You know, these services provide so much good to people's lives when they are used appropriately, according to people's values and according to people's intent. When we want to do this stuff, when we want to engage with each other this way, it is incredibly helpful. Let me give you a perfect case in point. During this pandemic, okay, can you imagine what this would have been like if the pandemic had struck not in the year 2020, but in the year 1990, before high-speed internet, before social networks? Oh my God, <laughs> this would have been so much more difficult to get through without the amazing connection that we have to other people. And for some reason, we don't think about this. We only think about the bad. We have what's called a negativity bias. And of course, the traditional media wants us to hate Facebook because that's their competition. 
right? The New York Times, the Atlantic, the Fox News, CNN, they're all selling your eyeballs. They're all selling your attention to advertisers just like Facebook. They monetize the exact same way. And that's not to say that these businesses are bad businesses. I think they're all fine, but we need to be conscious that the fact that they're all uh, they all want to hack your attention. All of them. They all want your attention. And so it's really, I think, up to us as users of these products to make sure that we use them with intent. There's nothing inherently wrong with them as long as we use them according to our values and our schedule. Now, from a community manager perspective, this is where we have a, a higher rung of responsibility than a, from a personal responsibility perspective. And I think the rule here should be that it is unethical to exploit addicts, right? If you know someone is addicted, pathologically addicted to your product, that is unethical to exploit them because they're not of sound body and mind, right? So just like a child, uh, you know, we have we have certain restrictions when someone cannot make sound decisions. So on children, you know, I wouldn't let my 12-year-old walk into a bar and order a gin and tonic. She's not ready for that. I wouldn't let her go to a casino and gamble. She's not ready for that. So children are a protected class. And I think that people who are pathologically addicted are also a protected class, okay? Now, it is wrong to look for those people. So for example, there are certain industries I will not work with. I won't work with casino gambling. I won't work with alcohol, tobacco, firearms, cigarettes, because those industries depend upon addicts. Meaning, if addicted people stopped going to Vegas, Vegas shuts down. They don't care about your bachelor, bachelorette party. That's icing on the cake. If they don't have people who sit in those chairs with diapers and play those slot machines until they spend all their money, Vegas goes out of business. That's why I think that's actually an unethical business. So the rule is, if you have people who are addicted as an unfortunate byproduct, you need to help them if you can. Of course, not every industry knows who the people who are addicted are. We in the tech industry, however, oftentimes do know. So my proposal for the industry that I've been you know, a proponent of for, for many years now and trying to get the social networks to do something about is, if you know someone is pathologically addicted, you have a responsibility to do something. And so how do they know? Time on site, right? So what I propose for them to do is to look at the people who are really oh, almost overusing, like give me some number. I call it a use and abuse policy. Is it 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week? What number of hours per week would you say is a user who is perhaps overusing this product. We don't cut them off, we send them a message. We send them a message that says, we see you are using your product to the extent that might indicate you are struggling with an addiction. Can we help? Okay, can we help? Now, this is not a problem for the vast majority of people listening right now. This is more of an ethical, intellectual debate. So I think for the big social media companies, this is what I think that they all should do. Uh, you know, wh whether it's Reddit, whether it's Snapchat, whether it's Pinterest, there are people for sure, very small percentage, who do overuse the product to the extent that it harms them. And I think these companies have this ethical responsibility. That is probably not, if you're a community manager out there, I'm guessing you don't have any people who are really using it to the extent that they're harming themselves. What we do want to make sure is that they understand how to use it with intent. So that's a, a long-winded answer. It's a, it's a complicated question. It would be much easier to say like, oh, break them up or, or shut them down. But of course, that's stupid, right? That uh, the answer to complicated questions is typically a, a nuanced answer. And so that's what I tried to provide there. That was a very good answer. I think one nuance that is important is when we talk about the responsibility of these large platforms and whether or not they're evil or what their responsibility is, I think it's a it's an interesting point that we tend to bundle a lot of things together when we talk about these big social platforms, which this conversation around addiction of creating addictive products, it gets bundled in with how people are using those products and the experience on those products. Mm. And I think it's an interesting point to say, like, the addiction argument is pretty overblown. And we have a lot of responsibilities mm -hmm. as individuals to be intentional about how we use them. But that's also when it's bundled with things like moderation of the kinds of content that shows up on those platforms, on the impact that it has to people when the algorithm keeps feeding you information. That's a different narrative and the different res ethical responsibility that these companies have that kind of get bundled in with this addiction argument as well. And I think that's an important line to distinguish between. 
Absolutely. And, and I'm not letting these companies off the hook, right? There are all kinds of things that we need to improve. And whether that comes from legislation or whether that comes from changes internally, there's a lot to be done, right? So whether it's uh, appropriate content, uh, whether it's the, these companies' monopoly status, there's lots and lots of questions. But that's, those are very different questions, I think, from this question around addiction and overuse. And you're absolutely right. It tends to get coupled all together to make the case these companies are bad. Right. <laughs> because simple people with simple minds want simple answers. And they want something like, you know, break them up or regulate or pass them. Well, what exactly do you want to do about that? You know, like, how do you actually want to fix this problem? That's where people, the, the conversation typically ends because it's much easier just to say, well, tech bad, tech good, and, you know, draw black and white sure. uh, distinctions. And that's not, that's not real life, right? Like, that, that's the reality is there's a lot of gray here. But I think, you know, in my specialty, in my area of expertise, when it comes to engagement, retention, uh, habits, addiction, you're absolutely right that this 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 idea that it's hijacking our brain, that it's addictive, it is so overblown, so un unscientific, and ironically, exactly what the companies want you to believe. Like, these companies want you to think you can't stop. These companies want you to think that there's nothing you can do to help your kids, right? Because they understand learned helplessness. Learned helplessness says that when someone thinks uh, that changing something is useless, they stop trying. And so they want you to believe there's nothing you can do <laughs> because they know you won't try. Totally. Whereas you say, actually, you know, if you, if, you, if you crack open indistractable, it's not that hard, right? There's nothing Mark Zuckerberg can do if you change your notification settings. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? Uh, even the, the, these evil algorithms that are feeding you content, you know, that's simple stuff. There's, there's tools that we can use every single day that help us do what I call hack back. Why do I call it hack back? We know that every media company out there, right, every company that monetizes your attention to sell it to advertisers, and again, that can be CNN, Fox News, The New York Times, anybody who monetizes through ads, they are hacking your attention. To hack means to gain unauthorized access to something, okay? Like a computer hacker would hack into a bank. So we know they're hacking your attention. That is not in dispute. The question is, why can't we hack back? Of course we can hack back. And in fact, we are way more powerful than they are because what we do on our end as individuals, they can't reverse, right? There are all kinds of things that we can do that they are powerless to change if we try. What most people do, you know, the two-thirds of people with a smartphone who never adjust their notification settings, two-thirds of people never adjusted their notification settings, they just complain about it. Oh, I can't do anything about it. It's so evil, so terrible. I'm so distracted. It's somebody else's fault, <laughs> right? And that's what I'm trying to fight against. Yeah. Thankfully, there's people like you now that we've been through the social media era long enough that we're like, oh, okay, this is something that we need to articulate solutions for and create better habits mm -hmm. around. Whereas before, it kind of just felt like mm -hmm. fun and games, right? There's these fun social apps. So I think like, books like Indistractable is a natural progression of, you know, how humans are adapting and evolving to these new ecosystems. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to make sure that folks understand what this system is that is engaging them, uh, especially folks who are listening to this podcast, because uh, I think the hooked model that you shared in the book hooked uh, has always lasted in my mind as as like of course this is how it works and it makes a ton of sense it's also helped me design communities that that in a healthy way right because mm -hmm. it really just helps you understand what are the things that can help people come back and remember that your community exists especially when there's these massive social networks taking everyone's attention small independent community builders need to understand these systems as well uh, to understand how can they grow engagement and and get some of people's attention mm -hmm. for communities that they believe are very positive and impactful and and good mm -hmm. um and so i i reference the hooked model all the time i included it in my book that's coming out soon too and so would love if you could just do a quick kind of run through of what the hooked model is and how community builders could use it to build more healthy engaged communities sure absolutely so the hook model is defined as an experience to connect the user's problem to your product with enough frequency to form a habit, 
And so these hooks are these four steps designed into the user experience that over time create these habits. So this is about repeat engagement, getting people to use your product, service, or community with sufficient frequency that it becomes a habit. It becomes part of their day-to-day lives. They come to it on their own without spammy messages, without expensive advertising. They use the product out of habit. So the four steps of the hook model are trigger, an action, a reward, and finally an investment. So let's start with triggers. There are two types of triggers. We have what we call the external trigger. These are kind of the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in your outside environment that tells you what to do next, that prompts you to action. Now that's important, okay, and we all see these uh, external triggers all around us every day, but that's actually less important than the second type of trigger, which is called an internal trigger. That in fact, 90% of the time, 90% of the time that we interact with our phones, according to a study that was just published actually two months ago, is not because of a ping and ding. Only 10% of the time do we check our phones because of some kind of external trigger. 90% of the time that we check our phone, we, we do so because of an internal trigger. What is an internal trigger? An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. Loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. It is a feeling that we want to escape from. Now you say, oh, that sounds kind of sinister. We're taking advantage of people's uncomfortable emotions. In fact, everything you do every day, every conscious action you take is always a desire to escape discomfort. We used to believe that it's all about carrots and sticks, right? The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Turns out that's no longer true. That everything the brain gets you to do is done from what's called a homeostatic response. It's done to escape discomfort everything, even the pursuit of pleasure, okay? The brain doesn't do what feels good. The brain does what felt good. The way the brain gets you to act is by remembering, ooh, I want, I crave, I desire that good feeling. That itself is psychologically destabilizing and makes you feel bad long enough to get you to do the thing your brain wants you to do, okay? Hmm. So everything is always about the desire to escape discomfort. Yeah, this is a really, really deep, important insight. (laughs) And it sounds... Sometimes when people hear this, they're, they say, wait, wait, are we supposed to make people feel bad then to get them to do what we want? No, 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 That's sadistic. We would never want to do that. Our job as product managers, as community managers, is to find that discomfort that already exists, okay? There's plenty of discomfort in the world already. Our job, the reason I love what we do for a living is that we get to solve people's pain points. But unless we understand what we are looking for, it's going to be very hard to find, Okay, so what I want people to do is to, to look at, at their job as looking for that discomfort, looking for that itch, looking for that pain, and finding ways to solve it. So starting with that internal trigger. The internal trigger is probably the most important step of the hook model because that's what we're building around, right? So understanding, oh, my product is solving loneliness, uncertainty, fatigue, stress, anxiety, whatever the case might be. That's absolutely crucial, okay? Because that's what's going to spur people Mm -hmm. to come back to your community, to use your app, to use your service, whatever the case might be, whenever they feel that discomfort. You're gonna solve that pain for them, okay? Just to jump in there too, when I've thought about how Hooked applies to communities, um, there's certainly the loneliness aspect, right? So you're building a community, you're creating a space of belonging and inclusion. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you really have a healthy, engaged safe community, then it becomes a place that when people feel a sense of loneliness, they know they can go to to find connection and find belonging. So that's one solution. And then for a lot of people who are building uh, interest-based communities where it's maybe around a profession or or something where people have ongoing challenges and problems, that's where there's a really great opportunity to apply this as well because you want your community to be the first place that people think of when they're like, I have a question about law, right? Maybe I'm a lawyer. I have a question about law. Where do I go? You want your community to be the first place that comes up in your mind when that those kinds of questions or challenges come up that you want to now go talk to other people to find a solution for. Exactly. I couldn't have said that better myself. That's perfect. And I think what, what I want to, you know, a common pitfall is when people design these communities or design uh, products, they think, okay, I want a place to post pictures, <laughs> right? Like, no, mm-hmm. that's right. not, that's a functional No one need. thinks that. <laughs> Nobody thinks that, exactly. What they, what they do is they feel, 
Okay, I look, I'm, I need connection. And by the way, they will never articulate this. Nobody says, ooh, I really need connection today. That's your job as a community manager, as a product manager, to go deeper into their psyche and understand, okay, what are they looking for on a psychological basis here? What's the itch that my product seeks to scratch? Absolutely. The second step, after we understand our external triggers and our internal triggers, the next step is the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest thing that I can do to get relief from that psychological discomfort. Open the app, scroll the feed, push the play button, whatever the case might be, the easiest thing I can do to get that itch scratched. So for a community, if what I'm really seeking is connection, Okay, if what I'm really seeking is an escape from loneliness, if what I'm really seeking is is a, a freedom from uncertainty, how can you give that to me as quickly as possible, as effortlessly as possible, as friction-free as possible when I use your product or service? And this is a really big deal because the definition of technological innovation is a service or product that decreases the distance between the recognition of the need to the alleviation of the need. That That's all technology, from the cotton gin to the iPhone, that's all technology does. It shortens the distance between the recognition of the need and the relief of the discomfort that, that, that the user feels. So your job is to reduce that friction as much as possible, to get people what they're looking for as quickly as you can, with as few steps as possible. That's the action phase. And of course, you know, there's a whole section in the book on how to do that, but let's move for the sake of time to, so I can give you a quick overview. The third step is what we call the variable reward phase. And these variable rewards come in three flavors, three types. We have rewards of the hunt, which is about the search for material possessions, money, information. We have rewards of the tribe, which is all about social rewards. And then we have rewards of the self, which is about mastery, completion, competency, and control. So what we find is that these three types of variable rewards, every habit-forming product needs at least one. The best ones have multiple <laughs> of these rewards. Um, you know, A good example is email, for example. There's the rewards of the tribe. Who is the email from? There's rewards of the hunt, right? It's about information. Well, there's uncertainty around what you might find when you open an email. And then there's rewards of the self. There's that satisfaction of trying to clear out your inbox, opening those unread messages so you can clear them away. There are all three types of rewards. The common element behind these rewards is that they're, they're what we call an intermittent reinforcement. There's uncertainty, there's variability involved. Variability causes us to engage, it causes us to focus, it's very entertaining, very interesting, and very habit-forming. Okay, so in all of these products and services, you always find this element of mystery. And this isn't something that's endemic just to technology. If you think about what makes sports fun to watch, right? Why are you, like if an alien came to Earth and said, wow, why are people spending all this time watching a bouncing ball across a pitch or a court? Uh, you know, what, what is the deal with these balls? Why do we love watching balls bounce up and down? You know, whether it's basketball, baseball, like, what is it? It's, you know, it's exactly like a dog, you know, how dogs, you know, can't take their eyes off of a ball when you throw it, when you play fetch with them. We're the same way. Why? Because there's uncertainty around where that ball might go. Right, and then of course everything else is 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 uh, built around it. Right, the teams, the playoffs, the 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 personalities. It's all about variability. Watching spectator sports is about variability. It's about uncertainty. Uh, when you think about the news, the first three letters of news is N E W. What's new? Nobody wants yesterday's news. They want to know what's new today. Why? Because it's uncertain. They don't know. Uh, think about day trading in the stock market. Right. Why do people day trade? It's a terrible way to make money. We do that because there's uncertainty. It's like a slot machine. Speaking of slot machines, nobody takes their eyes off of a slot machine once they pull the handle because they wanna know what they might win. And so when it comes to community management, what's the variable reward? It's primarily rewards of the tribe. There's uncertainty there around what people might say. What are their comments to what you said? What's the reaction people get from each other? There's all kinds of uncertainty within conversation. And that is perhaps the most human and primal and basic type of variable reward. Uh, variable rewards work because they are hardwired into us, right? We, we love this uncertainty that comes from relationships. And so that's what communities primarily are driven by is this variable reward of the tribe. 
Yeah. Uh, and this always made me realize with communities that if you think about when people come to communities, we talked about that trigger of like, I have a question and I'm looking for an answer to that question. Very practical use, right? To start off a lot of the time. And it's often, yeah, it's where they start off using a community. I have a question. I go to the community. I ask a question. I get an answer. Cool. That may not build a new habit. That may not keep them coming back because now their, their question's been answered, problem solved. Great. Where communities start to become a place that people build a habit around coming back is where there's consistent conversations and interesting discussions that aren't just about answering a specific question, but make them open their mind or think about things differently or inspire them. And that's when they start coming back regularly because they know that when they come back to the community, the chance of a very interesting discussion on a very interesting topic, it, they're likely to find that. And that's where they start to feel like, ooh, I want to know what's happening in the community today. I wonder what I'm missing in the community today. And that's where the habit forms. And you might have 90% of your members just coming to answer specific questions. But then what you'll see is that the smaller core group of community members come back because they're consistently interested in seeing what conversations are coming up in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a really important point here too, is that there has to be the right frequency of reward. Meaning, you know, a lot of communities die out because people come back once or twice and it's the same stuff. Like nothing's new, nothing's changed. Even if, you know, there are, let's say you have a lot of conversations going, if the user doesn't see the right balance of mundane, you know, predictable stuff they've seen to, whoa, that's surprising, or whoa, that's really interesting, then it doesn't work. It doesn't sustain itself, right? So if you think about how much time and effort is spent over at Facebook or Reddit or Pinterest on getting the right ratio between Eh, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that. Whoa, that's interesting, right? That's that slot machine-like mechanic that has to occur with the right cadence or people won't come back. So if it's too mundane, even if it's helpful, right? If it's not interesting or most importantly, the key word here is surprising, then oftentimes it won't keep people coming back. That's a very good lesson. Yeah, that's that's the third step. The, there's one final fourth step that is probably the most overlooked. I forgot about the fourth yeah. step. The fourth step is How could super I? important because most people think, okay, this is kind of like a habit loop. I've kind of seen this, right? Maybe you've read uh, Charles Duhigg's uh, Power of Habit, which is a phenomenal book and inspired me to write. Great book. Hooked, great book, yeah. A big reason why I wrote Hooked was because I read Power of Habit, and it was so good, but it was really designed for personal habits. So personal habits, you really only need these these three steps. Uh, you know, he calls a cue. I call it a trigger. He calls it a cue. Uh, then you got an action. Then you got a reward. Great for personal habits. That's pretty much all you need. For products, you're not done. For products and services and communities, there's a final fourth step that is absolutely critical, and we call this the investment phase. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to improve it with use, okay? Something into the product that improves it with use. And this is what's so different about building habit-forming products from building personal habits is that you have to get the user to invest in the product. Now, why? The point of the investment phase is to increase the likelihood of the next engagement with the product or service. And it does this in two ways. It either loads the next trigger, loading the next trigger, or, and, stores value. Loading the next trigger is when the user does something on their own to bring themselves back, okay? This is particularly relevant for a community. What does this look like? When you send someone a message on uh, you know, any number of messaging services, WhatsApp or Slack or in a community group, whatever the case might be, if you send someone a message or post something onto a community, there's no immediate gratification, okay? You don't get any points, you don't get any badges, leaderboard, like, there's no immediate gratification. What you're doing is you're loading the next trigger because you're likely to get a reply. And that reply comes in the form of an external trigger, right? So if you send someone a message on WhatsApp, when they reply, now you have an external trigger, that, that notification on your phone that says, hey, come back, somebody replied to what you sent. And that sends you through the hook once again, okay? So this isn't some piece of spammy messaging that you sent, it's something that your user did to bring themselves back, okay? So that's what's called loading the next trigger. The next part is, the, the second way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook 
is by storing value. And this is a really big deal. Storing value is about increasing the value of the product over time. Okay, so unlike things in the physical world, my clothing, uh, this desk, this chair, everything in the physical world depreciates with wear and tear, right? It loses value the more we interact with it, the more we use it up. Habit-forming products do the opposite. Habit-forming products appreciate with use. They get better and better the more we use them because of this concept of stored value. So for example, the more data we give to a company, the better it becomes at knowing our interests. The more content we upload, the more followers we have, uh, the better our reputation on a site, the more valuable the service becomes to us. So this is an absolutely critical component of community management is getting the user to invest in the service to make it better and better with use. Through data, content, followers, reputation, we can use these four basic elements to store value, make it more valuable, and make it more likely that people will come back in the future. Contribution, key part of community building, getting people invested. That's why it's so important when someone does introduce themselves for the first time in your community or ask their first question that they get a response in in a reasonable amount of time because that's what's going to keep them coming back. Right, right. That loads the next trigger. That's exactly that's a great point. It loads the next trigger and makes it more likely for them to come back in the future. Now, if you can design that in so that the product will improve with use over time based on that contribution, now that's a real win. And, and it's, it's a perfect offline analog, right? That when we think about when you get together with a bunch of friends, right? Let's say you got together uh, with a few friends, uh, you know, at a bar for just a, you know, a Friday night conversation back in the good old days when we can do that before Corona. And let's say that you sit or sit around the table and you you know you you get to a good part in the conversation and you kind of spill your guts about what's going on in your life and uh, you know the, that you're you're having a little trouble in your marriage and work sucks and blah 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 and you say all this stuff and then you see one of your friends a few weeks later and you sit down for lunch together and you realize they didn't hear a single thing you told them. Okay, they didn't remember anything you said. They don't remember that you have a new baby. They don't remember you're working on a new book. They don't remember all the things you're doing. They don't remember any of that. Would you call that person a good friend? No, right? Either they have amnesia or they weren't really paying attention. And we do this to our users all the time. They're giving us information. They want us to remember this stuff about them and we don't even bother to to take note. And that I think is a huge missed opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something community professionals do a lot is like, as people contribute, you learn more about who they are, what their expertise are, where they want to contribute to the community. And that gives you an opportunity to bring them in on topics that that are really relevant for them. So that really resonates. Exactly. Exactly. Moving back now to Indistractable. So now we understand the loop that's bringing us into these habits. And we as community builders are have an opportunity to build engaging healthy communities through the loop. But we as community professionals are also victims of it in in much of our work in our lives, right? Because community professionals, our job is to be on these social platforms. And I know every community professional I talk to has a challenge of separating, you know, work and life balance because we're using the same social tools for work as we are for a personal life. We have community members in all different time zones. So we kind of feel like we have to be accessible at all hours of the day. It's a challenge to kind of balance our own tech habits and how we use these social products. So how can community professionals create better habits and identify the distractions that are showing up in their life? Yeah, that's a terrific segue. And I think it's so important because I think it highlights why the traditional advice sucks. (laughs) Like, how are you going to tell a community manager, uh, you know what, take a digital detox. Uh, Just stop using it. We don't really have that option. Right? Oh, it's just, just stop using the come on now. <laughs> like, thanks, uh, you know, professor in your ivory tower who doesn't have a social media account. That's not useful. <laughs> right? Like, not helpful advice at all. So what I wanted to do was to make some very practical advice and give people the, the hope and empower them to use this stuff in a way that is consistent with their values. So let's go back to what we said earlier about what is the difference between traction and distraction. Traction is any action done with intent, with forethought that moves you closer to your values and helps 
to become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction, right? So anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do. So in your mind, I want you to picture two arrows, right, like a number line, pointing to the right and pointing to the left, okay? So you got traction to the right, you got distraction to the left. Now I want you to imagine that line being bisected vertically, okay? So you have two arrows pointing to the center of that horizontal line. Those represent your triggers, which we talked about earlier. That's very much about how to build habits. We've got your external triggers and your internal triggers, okay? So external triggers, again, are those pings and dings in your outside environment. The internal triggers are what's going on inside of you. Now we have the four points of this model, okay? And we can work our way around this model to use these four tactics to help us become indistractable. The first step, the most important step, is to talk about your internal triggers, to master those internal triggers so that you control them as opposed to them controlling you. This is the most important step, and it's one that people kind of gloss over when they say, oh, I'll just change my notification settings, I'll grayscale my phone, whatever like little life hack they've, they've just read. And it doesn't work because if you don't first and foremost realize that time management requires pain management. Let me say that again, this is super important. Time management requires pain management. If we don't understand the deeper reason why we are looking for escape, we will always be distracted by one thing or another, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. If we are doing something that takes us off track that is distracting, that is not what we plan to do. It's not a character flaw. There's probably nothing wrong with you. It's simply that you don't have the skill set to deal with emotional discomfort in a healthy way that leads you towards traction rather than an escape with distraction. So step number one has to be learning to deal with those internal triggers. Because let me tell you, I've worked with a lot of community managers over the years. And the reason they get distracted, the reason they say, you know what, I feel so bad. I, I try and sit down with my kids and yet my mind is somewhere else. I'm, I'm thinking about you know, my responsibilities for work or I'm at work and I said I was gonna do this one thing and now I'm doing something else, <laughs> right? Even if they're both work-related tasks, the thing you plan not to do. The, yeah, exactly, right? And by the way, this is the most dangerous form of distraction and I think the most common form is the kind that we don't even realize is happening. Right, we'll say, oh, let me just, you know, I have a big project, I really gotta focus, I really gotta work on this one thing without distraction, but let me just scroll that Slack channel real quick, right? Let me just check in on what's going on in the community. Let me just check email for a quick sec, because that's work-related, right? Doesn't that feel worky? Right. I gotta it do it anyway. It feels productive. It feels productive. It's what I call pseudo-productive, because it's, it's not what you plan to do, and if it's not what you plan to do, it is by definition a distraction. Okay, so that's the most dangerous form of, of distraction is the one that you don't really even realize is tricking you into responding to the urgent rather than the important. Right. One thing that really stood out to me and has stuck with me from your book is this idea of just becoming aware of how you're feeling when you find yourself being pulled into a distraction. Yes. So if you find yourself pulling up Twitter, pulling up Slack, pulling up your community, pulling up TikTok, as, as I've been known to do, is to like notice that you did that and pause and just kind of ask like how am i feeling right now what what are the emotions in my body that i might be avoiding and you'll realize whenever that happens that like oh yeah there is something discomfortable that i'm avoiding and that's why i just opened up this other thing or maybe you're you're trying to do deep work and it's just easier to work open open the email cuz you ran into like a hard question in your deep work and it's like ah, i don't want to figure that out i'm just going to do this other work real quick. Let me, let me just check. It's, it's avoiding that discomfort. That's exactly right. So I started doing that. I'm like, holy shit, like, that's it. Like, I just keep feeling this, like, something that is just uncomfortable and I, I'm avoiding it. Yeah, and, and that is uh, nine times out of 10, statistically speaking, I'm not making up that number. That is exactly why we get distracted, why we go off track, is that we don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like it. <laughs> and of course, you know, our, we don't want to admit that to ourselves. So then we say, oh, this other thing is super important or super urgent or is this or that or I got to do that. Okay, those are typically concoctions. You know, very rarely is it really an emergency. I have to check email right now. No, you don't. You just don't feel like doing the thing that you know you need to do. So you will find a distraction. And this is why the argument around, oh, d you know, technology is addicting us. It's hijacking our brains. Well, we're letting it. 
right? We're letting it because we're not we're not stopping for a second and realizing, wait a minute, why am I grabbing TikTok? Why am I going on Facebook? Why am I checking my phone compulsively? It's because we don't realize we are escaping emotional discomfort. The good news is, there are some wonderful techniques and tools out there that I didn't make up. I just core, I just uh, put into this book and, and uh, put all in one place that we can use. The research has been around for decades now. I, I talk about acceptance and commitment therapy around CBT. I talk about all these techniques that we can use, that anyone can use uh, to, to help us master those internal triggers. So there's about you know, over a dozen different techniques we can use. Just to be clear, uh, mindfulness meditation is very nice. I don't talk about it much in the book because I think it's been covered to death, but that also is another uh, effective technique. But I wanted to give new stuff that people hadn't used before uh, that can help you master those internal triggers. So that's step one. That's the most important step. The second step is to make time for traction. Okay, and when it comes to community managers, this is probably the lowest hanging fruit. This is the thing that any community manager can do. Most don't, and they pay the price for it. They pay the price in terms of added stress, poor relationships, poor physical health, because they don't plan their day. If you are the kind of person who wakes up in the morning and checks your to-do list before you check your calendar, you have already lost you have already lost. The to-do list, or I should say more specifically, running your life on a to-do list, destroys people's personal productivity. This is a myth. I call it a tyranny of the to-do list because it is such bad advice that people have been giving to run your life on a to-do list without first putting things on your calendar. So having that time on your calendar, why is it so important? I call this time boxing. This is so important because you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So when I talk to people who say, oh my gosh, I, 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 there's so much to do today. I, I, I had to do this and I had to do that and I didn't get to it. And did you see what my kids are asking and my boss wants this and uh, this happened on Twitter. And then you say, well, what did you plan to do with your time, right? Show me your calendar. And it's nine times out of 10, it's blank, right? Maybe a dentist appointment here and there or a meeting here and there. But no, you have to plan every minute of your day. It is no longer a luxury, not just to do the work, but to make sure you take care of your other values, right? Taking care of your body, taking care of your relationships, making sure you have time in your day for work without distraction. It has to be on your calendar because if it's not, you're gonna fall into this trap of, oh, I've got you know users all over the world and they might need me and I'm in the client services business. And guess what? Your life is gonna be a living hell because you're not planning out what you want to do with your time. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So that's the second big step. And that, that was such a huge one for me recently. I, I started time boxing a lot more. I used to do it a little bit, but I didn't actually put it in my calendar. Mm -hmm. Now I put it in my calendar. I literally have two slots for meditation in the day. I have a, a slot for lunch. I have my meeting blocks. I have my deep work blocks. I have my small task blocks. And I literally, every day, Love it. as a default, it can move around. It can be flexible, but my, I have a default calendar every day and it's it's changed the game so now for community managers you can have a block like okay check the community and respond to posts from this for this half hour in the morning yeah check email from community members for this time check the social media feeds from this time like you can time box these things instead of just being pulled into all five of them all day then you're never getting anything else done that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, so, and it's absolutely critical for community managers because community managers are constantly thinking in the back of their head, what if there's something going on I need to respond to? What if I need their, what if they need me? Well, that's why you have to have these time blocks of saying, okay, even if you want to check it every other hour, fine, but decide that in advance, right? So that while you're doing task A, you can focus on task A without thinking about what's happening in your community 24-7, right? Your job, every job has some element of what we call reactive work and reflective work. There is time in your day when you need to react to stuff. I totally appreciate that. Reacting to emails, reacting to notifications. I get that. But that can't be your entire day. You have to have some time in your day for what we call reflective work. This is time to think without distraction. If you don't have that time in your day, you can't do the planning, you can't do the thinking, you can't do the strategizing that you have to do to move your business and your community ahead.
So the third step of the indistractable model is to hack back the external trigger. So this is where we talk about how we can hack back those pings, dings, and rings. Uh, not only the obvious stuff like notifications, that's, that's kindergarten. Of course, we can do that. How do we hack back the external triggers that come from our kids, right? Well, many of us are working from home these days. Kids can be a huge distraction as well. We love them to death, but they can also take us off track. How do we hack back meetings, in-person or virtual? How do we hack back email? Oh my God, how many of us are drowning in emails? I show you how to hack back all those uh, external triggers as well. And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. Pacts are what we call pre-commitment devices, and this is one of the oldest and most effective techniques we can use to make sure that we can erect a firewall, a last line of defense to prevent us from getting distracted. So it's really about these four techniques in concert. Master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers, and prevent distraction with pacts. And this is something we can do personally, it's something we can do in our families, it's something we can do with our relationships, and it's something we can do to build an indistractable workplace. Absolutely love it. Highly recommend everyone pick up both of the books. We're, we're squeezing two books into one podcast episode. So <laughs> we're getting the brief overview, but I've read both. Um, read Hooked multiple times. Indistractable's already becoming one that I know I'm going to read again soon. Um, so highly recommend picking that up to go deeper with all these tips. But we are almost out of time, which means it's time for our rapid fire question round, everyone's favorite part of the show. Are you ready for the rapid-fire question round, Nier? I am ready. Let's do it. Ready as you're going to be. All right, let's dive in. What's your favorite book to recommend to others or give as gifts to others? So I'll, I'll say the book that inspired me to start writing. Uh, I didn't know I'd become a professional author, but uh, the book that inspired me, and so I have to recommend and pay homage, is Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham. I just love that format of, of his writing, and it, and it really inspired me because he, he loves to overturn apple carts, and that's what I try and do in my writing is to help people see things in a, in a different way. Mm, I love that. I love his essays, so I'll have to check out the book. I haven't read the book. Oh, so good. Um, two, who's an up-and-coming creator or community builder that you recommend we all follow? So I've been super impressed by my friend David Perel. Uh, mm, he he uh, teaches one. writing. I do, yeah, he's great. Yeah, so I'd recommend David Perel. I follow him on Twitter. He's awesome. What does he do so everyone knows why they should follow him too? Yeah, so he specializes in helping people build what he calls a personal monopoly. So it's about uh, mostly for writers, for people who want to start a blog or maybe write a book someday. Uh, he talks a lot about how how the future of media will be uh, atomized to an individual level. So you'll create like a personal brand. And those folks who can do that can have outsized success and outsized influence. Love it. All right, next question. What's your favorite app or tool for managing your time and attention? My calendar. So I use Google Calendar uh, to time box. We talked a little bit about time boxing earlier. Very critical technique. If you, uh, so some people find that a little intimidating to get started, but I will give you a link in my show notes, in your show notes. I built a tool on my website uh, at nearandfar.com forward slash schedule hyphen maker, uh, nearandfar.com forward slash schedule hyphen maker. I'll give you the link uh, for the show notes as well. Uh, I built this very simple tool. I just hacked it up myself to give people uh, this very simple calendar that they can use to start time boxing. Uh, and, and that's a, you know, I didn't invent time boxing. It's been around for a very long time, but it is a life changer, as you know, David. Absolutely. Love it. All right. Next question. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? All right. So weirdest would be, uh, I am a barefoot runner <laughs> and I, I started, oh, you are. Yeah, and I started doing this back. Uh, I read born to run. Born to so run. Exactly. Like That's I, the book that got me too. Oh, Fantastic. Incredible book. book. Yeah. And so when I read that book, I read that, I, I used to hate running. As I mentioned, I used to be clinically obese, hated running. And then I got into barefoot running and, and, uh, I just fell in love with it. And so I've been a barefoot runner since 2012. That's got to be a weird community. I, I want to go to one of those meetups it's and a see weird who community. shows up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird community. <laughs> um, all right, next question. What's the habit in your life you're most grateful for today? So I, I, um, I'm not going to call it a habit. I would call it a routine because by definition, a habit is behavior done with little or no conscious thought. But I would say a routine that I think is I'm, I'm most uh, happy to have in my life is uh, I consistently make time uh, to be with my wife. Uh, and it's on our calendar. We time box it. Uh, we take these long walks on Tuesdays and Saturdays. And uh, it's 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 so important. I mean, we've been married for almost 20 years now, believe it or not. Some unbelievable. But uh, it definitely keeps us happy and keeps us together. I love that. Yeah, we do date night regularly as well. And just you have to, especially today, there's so many you other things to. pulling you everywhere, having to have that day. Exactly. And it, 
it sounds like, oh, why do we need to plan time for each other? Shouldn't we just want to spend time with each other? No. no this is how we make it. sure we get that time together. <laughs> you have to put it on your calendar. Yeah. Just like you would, you know, what if, uh, you know, Michael Jordan wanted to have lunch with you or, you know, Oprah wants to have lunch with you. You would also book that time on your calendar, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Well, of course, your spouse, your partner is the most important person in the world to you. I love that. Of course, you got to make that time. Don't give them the little scraps of time left over in your day. That's right. And I saw in your book, you do that with your friends too. And I was like, yeah, I like that. I should do that with my friends. Yeah. Make sure we have time. Absolutely. Uh, last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Sure. So I, I, I let me give you two of my favorite mantras. Uh, if you encapsulated my second book into one phrase, it would be the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That fundamentally, the reason we go off track, the reason we get distracted, the reason we don't live the kind of life we don't, we, we didn't choose is because of impulsiveness. It's when we know what to do, but somehow we didn't do it. Well, the solution to that is forethought, is planning ahead. There is no distraction that we cannot overcome as long as we plan ahead. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The second one that I really, uh, that I repeat every day is that happiness is enjoying the success of others. Happiness is enjoying the success of others. If you can, I mean, to me, that is that is what real lasting happiness is, is, oh my God, my, my friend David is doing so well. I'm so happy for him, right? So to extend that not only to your friends, but also to your enemies, <laughs> so to speak, right? Your competitors. But having that, that sense of goodwill towards others and knowing that you're happy that someone else is happy is, is the best thing ever. I absolutely love that advice. I'm going to take that to heart. Nir, this is incredible. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And like I said, you've always been an inspiration and an incredible mentor for me. So super grateful for you and for you taking the time to share all your wisdom with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And where can people go to find you and continue to follow you? Yeah, my blog is nearandfar.com. Nir is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far.com. And uh, my first book is called Hooked. And my second book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Go pick them up, read them, love them. Nir, thanks again. We'll see everyone next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.